Section 7 of The Jim Crow Car, or Denouncement of Injustice Meted Out to the Black Race, by Rev. J.C. Coleman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3. Imposition. It may be conceded that the observations are synonymous, in that they express the sum and substance of the first observation under the caption, Injustice. In the preceding chapter, we have brought out clearly the discriminating elements. The imposing forces expand as fast as the white population increases in the southern states, and has developed into many northern quarters. The great, the small, the rich and the poor, the high and the low, white persons, all have their way of bantering their colored brother. As a rule, young white men and young colored men are at variance with each other. The same may be said of young white and colored women. The whites of both sexes avoid politeness with the colored to show their superiority. Children are innocent. The poor boy, whose father is the servant of a millionaire, can usually find room in the play yard of the millionaire's children. But this is not so in the case of the white and colored boy. The white boy early learns that the colored boy must eat last drink last, pass through the gate last, and have the last choice of the toys. One of the most singular and inhuman habits the American white people possess is that of shirking the colored people during luncheon. Their colored cook may have handled and even partaken of every piece in the dish, but the most refined, decent, lady or gentleman alike, colored person is extremely abhorred and debarred on this occasion. We note these facts as local condition of affairs. The general imposition on the colored race are 1. Lynching, 2. Discount in wages, and 3. Immoral conduct with colored women. Before beginning to elucidate these points, it is well to determine whether the black man is worthy of any defense in this direction. Is he qualified for a neighbor? Or does he intrude on the rights of the government, or on the municipal rights, or on individual rights? Is he a subject of charity, as many other foreign nationalities? These vital considerations and most important questions are answered to some extent in the following clipping from the Chicago Inter-Ocean, June 26, 1894. Only 46 out of 4,200. Some interesting statistics have been furnished by the Secretary of the School Children's Aid Society relative to the work done during the winter of 1893-94. As is generally known, the Society is an outgrowth and under the direct patronage of the Chicago Women's Club. It was organized after the enactment of the Compulsory Education Law of Illinois for the purpose of clothing the children of the poor who otherwise would be able to attend school. The past season will long be remembered as one of unusual suffering, and the Society expended a sum amounting to $8,521.29. The money was chiefly spent in purchasing shoes, boys' clothing, and material for girls' dresses, skirts, and aprons. The matter of nationality is a most interesting item in the report. Of those aided, 1,115 were Irish, 995 German, 572 Americans, 328 Bohemians, 233 English, 184 Jews, 198 Italians, 156 Norwegians, 180 Swedes, 68 Scotch, 57 Danish, 48 French, 46 Negroes, 6 Spanish, 6 Welsh, 5 Swiss. The Swiss, French, and Spanish form a comparatively small percent of the population of Chicago, while the thrifty and industrious Scotch and Danes are very numerous. The most striking feature, however, continued the Daily Interocean, June 26, 1894, is that but 46 Negroes received assistance, and this in the face of the truth that our colored population numbers many thousands. Of the 46, six were discovered accidentally and sought out by the secretary, but who themselves made no appeal for relief. The mother had come to the rooms of the society for work, 
and when questioned said that her husband had been a janitor in a building which had been closed but had hope of getting work in the spring in the meantime she said the children could be kept at home until then when they could buy shoes for them and send them to school it is gratifying to know that they were not forced to wait but that their wants were supplied at once another virtue credited the negroes by the society is gratitude of all who were aided with but few exceptions they alone expressed any appreciation of what was done for them this testimony must be of interest to those who have always insisted that the negro is a chronic beggar and hopelessly dependent out of four thousand two hundred cases assisted by the society during the entire winter but 46 were Negroes. Thousands of similar words to the above could be said of the black race. There are no noted thieves in the race, such as bank robbers, train robbers, and government robbers. Not traits of the race. We thank our God that no Rube Burroughs and Jesse James have arose in the race of African descent. We may therefore say, with propriety, the black man is worthy of defense. He is worthy of being exonerated from his present imposed state. Lynching. With prefatory statements of our indebtedness to Mrs. Ida B. Wells Barnett for her extensive travels in Great Britain and America, delivering expressive and impressive lectures against this horrible, disgraceful, and king of all impositions upon a downtrodden people, we write what we know of the subject, and supplement some cases denounced in The Reason Why by Mrs. Barnett. Lynching has grown to be an event which elicits multitudes, composed of men, women, and children, to cheer the participants as though some renowned act of heroism is being performed. The newspapers have given space to eulogize the lynchers instead of condemning them. The journals of today have grown so high in public favor that seven out of every ten readers will firmly believe the current reports. Even some of the northern black people themselves are to some extent in sympathy with the lynchers, believing that their own men are so vile and brutish that they deserve such heinous punishment. The question is everywhere heard. Why do they lynch the colored people down south? The general presumption is that colored men are struck after the white women. Why were they not hankering after them during slavery? Why did the master leave his slave to wait on his family during the war of 1861-65 while he engaged in battle? Colored men were honest in the dark days of slavery, and they are honest now. The ascension of the colored people of the South to high seats of honor and the fear that they will ultimately predominate have some say-so in these lynches. I have known bloodthirsty mobs to appoint one of their own men to assault some young woman who would not yield to a member of the mob to black his face and fix like a nigger and remain in secrecy until a chance presented itself, then suddenly light upon his prey armed with a revolver. After reaching his highest point of ambition, the mob is called to lynch some innocent black man for the outrageous deed of a man of another color. The visit of Madame Barnett to England in behalf of the black people of America drew more favor for the race than Honorable Frederick Douglass or some other distinguished colored man could have drawn. It was not a man defending his own sex, but a young lady, having been educated at Holly Springs, Mississippi, and labored with her own people and for her own people in the South, who went to England in defense of the innocent men falling victims to the mobs, and being deprived of legal hearing or trial. Rape is the prevalent charge. The mob is the criterion. This condition of things are grievous and more so when we see other accusations brought against men, women, and children of the black race, and lynchings being the result before proper course has been taken to decide whether they are innocent or guilty, which will be further seen in the following contribution by Ida B. Wells Barnett. Lynch Law by Ida B. Wells Barnett 
Lynch Law, says the Virginia Lancet, as known by that appellation, had its origin in 1780 in a combination of citizens of Pittsylvania County, Virginia, entered into for the purpose of suppressing a trained band of horse thieves and counterfeiters whose well-concocted schemes had bidden defiance to the ordinary laws of the land and whose success encouraged and emboldened them in their outrages upon the community. Colonel William Lynch drafted the Constitution for this combination of citizens, and hence Lynch Law has ever since been the name given to the summary infliction of punishment by private and unauthorized citizens. This law continues in force today in some of the oldest states of the Union, whose courts of justice have long been established, whose laws are executed by white Americans. It flourishes most largely in the states which foster the convict lease system and is brought to bear mainly against the Negro. The first 15 years of his freedom, he was murdered by masked mobs for trying to vote. Public opinion, having made lynching for that cause unpopular, a new reason is given to justify the murders of the past 15 years. The Negro was first charged with attempting to rule white people, and hundreds were murdered on that pretended supposition. He is now charged with assaulting or attempting to assault white women. This charge, as false as it is foul, robs us of the sympathy of the world and is blasting the race's good name. The men who make these charges encourage or lead the mobs which do the lynching. They belong to the race which holds Negro life cheap, which owns the telegraph wires, newspapers, and all other communication with the outside world. They write the reports which justify lynching by painting the Negro as black as possible. And those reports are accepted by the press associations and the world without question or investigation. The mob spirit has increased with alarming frequency and violence. Over a thousand black men, women, and children have been thus sacrificed the past ten years. Masks have long since been thrown aside, and the lynchings of the present day take place in broad daylight. The sheriffs, police, and state officials stand by and see the work well done. The coroner's jury is often formed among those who took part in the lynching, and a verdict, death at the hands of parties unknown to the jury, is rendered. As the number of lynchings have increased, so has the cruelty and barbarism of the lynchers. Three human beings were burned alive in civilized America during the first six months of this year, 1893. Over 100 have been lynched in this half year. They were hanged, then cut, shot, and burned. The following table, published by the Chicago Tribune, January 1892, is submitted for thoughtful consideration. 1882, 52 Negroes murdered by mobs. 1883, 39 Negroes murdered by mobs. 1884, 53 Negroes murdered by mobs. 1885, 77 Negroes murdered by mobs. 1886, 73 Negroes murdered by mobs. 1887, 70 Negroes murdered by mobs. 1888, 72 Negroes murdered by mobs. 1889, 95 Negroes murdered by mobs. 1890, 100 Negroes murdered by mobs. 1891, 169 Negroes murdered by mobs. Of this number, 269 were charged with rape, 253 were charged with murder, 44 were charged with robbery, 37 were charged with incendiarism, 4 were charged with burglary, 27 were charged with race prejudice, 13 were charged with quarreling with white men, Ten were charged with making threats, seven were charged with rioting, five were charged with miscegenation, thirty-two were charged with no reason given. This table shows, one, that only one-third of nearly a thousand murdered black persons have been even charged with a crime of outrage. 
This crime is only so punished when white women accuse black men, which accusation is never proven. The same crime committed by Negroes against Negroes or by white men against black women is ignored even in the law courts. 2. That nearly as many were lynched for murder as for the above crime, which the world believes is the cause of all the lynchings. The world affects to believe that white womanhood and childhood, surrounded by their lawful protectors, are not safe in the neighborhood of the black man, who protected and cared for them during the four years of civil war. The husbands, fathers, and brothers of those white women were away for four years, fighting to keep the Negro in slavery, yet not one case of assault has ever been reported. 3. That... Robbery, incendiarism, race prejudice, quarreling with white men, making threats, rioting, miscegenation, marrying a white person, and burglary are capital offenses punishable by death when committed by a black against a white person. Nearly as many blacks were lynched for these charges, and unproven, as for the crime of rape. 4. That for nearly 50 of these lynchings, no reason is given. There is no demand for reasons or need of concealment for what no one is held responsible. The simple word of any white person against a Negro is sufficient to get a crowd of white men to lynch a Negro. Investigation as to the guilt or innocence of the accused is never made. Under these conditions, white men have only to blacken their faces commit crimes against the peace of the community, accuse some Negro, nor rest till he is killed by a mob. Will Lewis, an 18-year-old Negro youth, was lynched at Tullahoma, Tennessee, August 1891, for being drunk and saucy to white folks. The women of the race have not escaped the fury of the mob. In Jackson, Tennessee, in the summer of 1886, a white woman died of poisoning. Her black cook was suspected, and as a box of rat poison was found in her room, she was hurried away to jail. When the mob had worked itself to the lynching pitch, she was dragged out of jail, every stitch of clothing torn from her body, and she was hung in the public courthouse square in sight of everybody. Jackson is one of the oldest towns in the state, and the state Supreme Court holds its sittings there. But no one was arrested for the deed. Not even a protest was uttered. The husband of the poisoned woman has since died a raving maniac, and his ravings showed that he, and not the poor black cook, was the poisoner of his wife. A 15-year-old Negro girl was hanged in Rayville, Louisiana in the spring of 1892 on the same charge of poisoning white persons. There was no more proof or investigation of this case than the one in Jackson. A Negro woman, Lou Stevens, was hanged from a railway bridge in Hollandale, Mississippi in 1892. She was charged with being accessory to the murder of her white paramour, who had shamefully abused her. In 1892, there were 240 persons lynched. The entire number is divided among the following states. Alabama, 22. Arkansas, 25. California, 3. Florida, 11. Georgia, 17. Idaho, 8. Montana, 4. New York, 1. North Carolina, 5. North Dakota, 1. Ohio, 3. South Carolina, 5. Illinois, 1. Kansas, 3. Kentucky, 9. Louisiana, 29. Maryland, 1. Mississippi, 16. Missouri, 6. Tennessee, 28. Texas, 15. Virginia, 7. West Virginia, 5. Wyoming, 9. Arizona Territory, 3. Oklahoma, 2. Of this number, 160 were of Negro descent. Four of them were lynched in New York, Ohio, and Kansas. The remainder were murdered in the South. Five of this number were females. The charges for which they were lynched cover a wide range. They are as follows. Rape, 46. Murder, 58. Rioting, 3. Race prejudice, 6. 
no cause given, four. Incendiarism, six. Robbery, six. Assault and battery, one. Attempted rape, eleven. Suspected robbery, four. Larceny, one. Self-defense, one. Insulting women, two. Desperados, six. Fraud, one. Attempted murder, two. No offense stated, boy and girl, two. In the case of the boy and girl above referred to, their father, named Hastings, was accused of the murder of a white man. His 14-year-old daughter and 16-year-old son were hanged, and their bodies filled with bullets. Then the father was also lynched. This was in November 1892 at Jonesville, Louisiana. A lynching equally as cold-blooded took place in Memphis, Tennessee, March 1892. Three young colored men, in an altercation at their place of business, fired on white men in self-defense. They were imprisoned for three days, then taken out by the mob and horribly shot to death. Thomas Moss, Will Stewart, and Calvin McDowell were energetic businessmen who had built up a flourishing grocery business. This business had prospered, and that of a rival white grocer named Barrett had declined. Barrett led the attack on their grocery, which resulted in the wounding of three white men. For this cause were three innocent men barbarously lynched, and their families left without protectors. Memphis is one of the leading cities of Tennessee, a town of 75,000 inhabitants. No effort, whatever, was made to punish the murderers of these three men. It counted for nothing that the victims of this outrage were three of the best-known young men of a population of 30,000 colored people of Memphis. They were the officers of the company which conducted the grocery, Moss being the president, Stewart the secretary of the company, and McDowell the manager. Moss was in the civil service of the United States as letter carrier, and all three were men of splendid reputation for honesty, integrity, and sobriety. But their murderers, though well-known, have never been indicted, were not even troubled with a preliminary examination. With law held in such contempt, it is not a matter of surprise that the same city, one of the so-called Queen Cities of the South, should again give itself over to a display of almost indescribable barbarism. This time, the mob made no attempt to conceal its identity, but reveled in the contemplation of its feast of crime. Lee Walker, a colored man, was the victim. Two white women complained that while driving to town, a colored man jumped from a place of concealment and dragged one of the two women from the wagon, but their screams frightened him away. Alarm was given that a Negro had made an attempted assault upon the women, and bands of men set out to run him down. They shot a colored man who refused to stop when called. It was fully ten days before Walker was caught. He admitted that he did attack the women, but that he made no attempt to assault them, that he offered them no indecency whatever, of which, as a matter of fact, they never accused him. He said he was hungry, and he was determined to have something to eat. But after throwing one of the women out of the wagon, became frightened and ran away. He was duly arrested and taken to the Memphis jail. The fact that he was in prison and could be promptly tried and punished did not prevent the good citizens of Memphis from taking the law in their own hands, and Walker was lynched. The Memphis commercial of Saturday, July 23rd, contains a full account of the tragedy, from which the following extracts are made. At 12 o'clock last night, Lee Walker, who attempted to outrage Miss Molly McCadden last Tuesday morning, was taken from the county jail and hanged to a telegraph pole just north of the prison. All day, rumors were afloat that with nightfall, an attack would be made upon the jail, and as everyone anticipated that a vigorous resistance would be made, a conflict between the mob and the authorities was feared. At 10 o'clock, Captain O'Haver, Sergeant Horan, and several patrolmen were on hand, but they could do nothing with the crowd. 
an attack by the mob was made on the door in the south wall, and it yielded. Sheriff McClendon and several of his men threw themselves into the breach, but two or three of the storming party shoved by. They were seized by the police, but were not subdued, the officers refraining from using their clubs. The entire mob might at first have been dispensed by ten policemen who would use their clubs, but the sheriff insisted that no violence be done. The mob got an iron rail and used it as a battering ram against the lobby doors. Sheriff McClendon tried to stop them, and someone of the mob knocked him down with a chair. Still he counseled moderation, and would not order his deputies and the police to disperse the crowd by force. The pacific policy of the sheriff impressed the mob with the idea that the officers were afraid, or at least would do them no harm, and they redoubled their efforts, urged on by a big switchman. At twelve o'clock the door of the prison was broken in with a rail. As soon as the rapist was brought to the door, calls were heard for a rope, then someone shouted, Burn him! But there was no time to make a fire. When Walker got into the lobby, a dozen of the men began beating and stabbing him. He was half dragged, half carried, to the corner of Front Street and the alley between Sycamore and Mill, and hung to a telephone pole. Walker made a desperate resistance. Two men entered his cell first and ordered him to come forth. He refused, and they failing to drag him out, others entered. He scratched and bit his assailants, wounding several of them severely with his teeth. The mob retaliated by striking and cutting him with fists and knives. When he reached the steps leading down to the door, he made another stand and was stabbed again and again. By the time he reached the lobby, his power to resist was gone, and he was shoved along through the mob of yelling, cursing men and boys who beat, spat upon, and slashed the wretched-like demon. One of the leaders of the mob fell, and the crowd walked ruthlessly over him. He was badly hurt, a jawbone fractured and internal injuries inflicted. After the lynching, friends took charge of him. The mob proceeded north on Front Street with the victim, stopping at Sycamore Street to get a rope from a grocery. "'Take him to the Iron Bridge on Main Street!' yelled several men. The men who had hold of the Negro were in a hurry to finish the job, however, and when they reached the telephone pole at the corner of Front Street and the first alley north of Sycamore, they stopped. A hastily improvised noose was slipped over the Negro's head, and several young men mounted a pile of lumber near the pole and threw the rope over one of the iron stepping pins. The Negro was lifted up until his feet were three feet above the ground, the rope was made taut, and a corpse dangled in midair. A big fellow who helped lead the mob pulled the negro's legs until his neck cracked. The wretch's clothes had been torn off, and as he swung, the man who pulled his legs mutilated the corpse. One or two knife cuts, more or less, made little difference in the appearance of the dead rapist, however, for before the rope was around his neck, his skin was cut almost to ribbons. One pistol shot was fired while the corpse was hanging. A dozen voices protested against the use of firearms, and there was no more shooting. The body was permitted to hang for half an hour, then it was cut down and the rope divided among those who lingered around the scene of the tragedy. Then it was suggested that the corpse be burned, and it was done. The entire performance, from the assault on the jail to the burning of the dead Negro, was witnessed by a score or so of policemen and as many deputy sheriffs, but not a hand was lifted to stop the proceedings after the jail door yielded. As the body hung to the telegraph pole, blood streaming down from the knife wounds in his neck, his hips and lower parts of his legs also slashed with knives. The crowd hurled expletives at him, swung his body so that it was dashed against the pole, and, so far from the ghastly sight proving trying to the nerves, the crowd looked on with complacence, if not with real pleasure. The Negro died hard. The neck was not broken, as the body was drawn up without being given a fall, and death came by strangulation. 
for fully ten minutes after he was strung up, the chest heaved occasionally, and there were convulsive movements of the limbs. Finally, he was pronounced dead, and a few minutes later, Detective Richardson climbed on a pile of staves and cut the rope. The body fell in a ghastly heap, and the crowd laughed at the sound, and crowded around the prostrate body, a few kicking the inanimate carcass. Detective Richardson, who is also a deputy coroner, then proceeded to impanel the following jury of inquest. J.S. Moody, A.C. Waldron, B.J. Childs, J.N. House, Nelson Bills, T.L. Smith, and A. Newhouse. After viewing the body, the inquest was adjourned without any testimony being taken until 9 o'clock this morning. The jury will meet at the coroner's office, 51 Beale Street, upstairs, and decide on a verdict. If no witnesses are forthcoming, the jury will be able to arrive at a verdict just the same, as all members of it saw the lynching. Then someone raised the cry of, Burn him! It was quickly taken up and soon resounded from a hundred throats. Detective Richardson, for a long time, single-handed, stood the crowd off. He talked and begged the men not to bring disgrace on the city by burning the body, arguing that all the vengeance possible had been wrought. While this was going on, a small crowd was busy starting a fire in the middle of the street. The material was handy. Small bundles of staves were taken from the adjoining lumberyard for kindling. Heavier wood was obtained from the same source, and coal oil from a neighboring grocery. Then the cries of, Burn him! Burn him! were redoubled. Half a dozen men seized the naked body. The crowd cheered. They marched to the fire, and giving the body a swing, it was landed in the middle of the fire. There was a cry for more wood, as the fire had begun to die, owing to the long delay. Willing hands procured the wood, and it was piled up on the negro, almost for a time obscuring him from view. The head was in plain view, as also were the limbs, and one arm which stood out high above the body, the elbow crooked, held in that position by a stick of wood. In a few moments the hands began to swell. Then came great blisters over all the exposed parts of the body. Then in places the flesh was burned away, and the bones began to show through. It was a horrible sight, one which perhaps none there had ever witnessed before. It proved too much for a large part of the crowd, and the majority of the mob left very shortly after the burning began. But a large number stayed, and were not a bit set back by the sight of a human body being burned to ashes. Two or three white women, accompanied by their escorts, pushed to the front to obtain an unobstructed view and looked on with astonishing coolness and nonchalance. One man and woman brought a little girl, not over twelve years old, apparently their daughter, to view a scene which was calculated to drive the sleep from the child's eyes for many nights, if not to produce a permanent injury to her nervous system. The comments of the crowd were varied. Some remarked on the efficacy of this style of cure for rapists. Others rejoiced that men's wives and daughters were now safe from this wretch. Some laughed as the flesh cracked and blistered. And while a large number pronounced the burning of a dead body as a useless episode, not in all that throng was a word of sympathy heard for the wretch himself. The rope that was used to hang the Negro, and also that which was used to lead him from the jail, were eagerly sought by relic hunters. They almost fought for a chance to cut off a piece of rope, and in an incredibly short time both ropes had disappeared and were scattered in the pockets of the crowd in sections of from an inch to six inches long. Others of the relic hunters remained until the ashes cooled to obtain such ghastly relics as the teeth, nails, and bits of charred skin of the immolated victim of his own lust. After burning the body, the mob tied a rope around the charred trunk and dragged it down Main Street to the courthouse, where it was hanged to a center pole. The rope broke, and the corpse dropped with a thud, but it was again hoisted, the charred legs barely touching the ground. 
The teeth were knocked out and the fingernails cut off as souvenirs. The crowd made so much noise that the police interfered. Undertaker Walsh was telephoned for, who took charge of the body and carried it to his establishment, where it will be prepared for burial in the potter's field today. A prelude to this exhibition of 19th century barbarism was the following telegram received by the Chicago Inter-Ocean at 2 o'clock Saturday afternoon, 10 hours before the lynching. Memphis, Tennessee, July 22nd to Inter-Ocean, Chicago. Lee Walker, colored man, accused of raping white women, in jail here, will be taken out and burned by whites tonight. Can you send Miss Ida Wells to write it up? Answer. R.M. Martin with Public Ledger. The Public Ledger is one of the oldest evening daily papers in Memphis, and this telegram shows that the intentions of the mob were well known long before they were executed. The personnel of the mob is given by the Memphis Appeal Avalanche. It says, At first it seemed as if a crowd of roughs were the principals, but as it increased in size, men in all walks of life figured as leaders, although the majority were young men. This was the punishment meted out to a Negro, charged not with rape, but attempted assault and without any proof as to his guilt, for the women were not given a chance to identify him. It was only a little less horrible than the burning alive of Henry Smith at Paris, Texas, February 1st, 1893, or that of Edward Coy in Texarkana, Texas, February 20th, 1892. Both were charged with assault on white women, and both were tied to the stake and burned while yet alive, in the presence of 10,000 persons. In the case of Coy, the white woman in the case applied the match, even while the victim protested his innocence. In some of these cases, the mob affects to believe in the Negro's guilt. The world is told that the white woman in the case identifies him, or the prisoner confesses. But in the lynching which took place in Barnwell County, South Carolina, April 24, 1893, the mob's victim, John Peterson, escaped and placed himself under Governor Tillman's protection. Not only did he declare his innocence, but offered to prove an alibi with white witnesses. Before his witnesses could be brought, the mob arrived at the governor's mansion and demanded the prisoner. He was given up. And although the white woman in the case said he was not the man, he was hanged 24 hours after, and over a thousand bullets fired into his body on the declaration that a crime had been committed and someone had to hang for it. The lynching of C.J. Miller at Bardwell, Kentucky, July 7, 1893, was on the same principle. Two white girls were found murdered near their home on the morning of July 5th. Their bodies were horribly mutilated. Although their father had been instrumental in the prosecution and conviction of one of his white neighbors for murder, that was not considered as a motive. A hue and cry was raised that some Negro had committed rape and murder, and a search was immediately begun for a Negro. A bloodhound was put on the trail, which he followed to the river and into the boat of a fisherman named Gordon. This fisherman said he had rowed a white man, or a very fair mulatto, across the river at six o'clock the evening before. The bloodhound was carried across the river, took up the trail on the Missouri side, and ran about 200 yards to the cottage of a white farmer, and there lay down, refusing to go further. Meanwhile, a strange Negro had been arrested in Sykestown, Missouri, and the authorities telegraphed that fact to Bardwell, Kentucky. The sheriff, without requisition, escorted the prisoner to the Kentucky side and turned him over to the authorities who accompanied the mob. The prisoner was a man with dark brown skin. He said his name was Miller and that he had never been in Kentucky. The fisherman who had said the man he rode over was white, when told by the sheriff that he would be held responsible as knowing the guilty man if he failed to identify the prisoner, said Miller was the man. The mob wished to burn him then, about ten o'clock in the morning, but Mr. Ray, the father of the girls, with great difficulty urged them to wait till three o'clock that afternoon. Confident of his innocence, Miller remained cool, while hundreds of drunken, heavily armed men 
raged about him. He said, My name is C.J. Miller. I am from Springfield, Illinois. My wife lives at 716 North 2nd Street. I am here among you today looked upon as one of the most brutal men before the people. I stand here surrounded by men who are excited, men who are not willing to let the law take its course. And as far as the law is concerned, I have committed no crime, and certainly no crime gross enough to deprive me of my life or liberty to walk upon the green earth. I had some rings which I bought in Bismarck of a Jew peddler. I paid him $4.50 for them. I left Springfield on the first day of July and came to Alton. From Alton, I went to East St. Louis, from there to Jefferson Barracks, thence to DeSoto, thence to Bismarck, and to Piedmont, thence to Poplar Bluff, thence to Hoxie, to Jonesboro, and then on a local freight to Malden, from there to Sykeston. On the fifth day of July, the day I was supposed to have committed the offense, I was at Bismarck. Failing in any way to connect Miller with the crime, the mob decided to give him the benefit of the doubt and hang instead of burn him, as was first intended. At three o'clock, the hour set for the execution, the mob rushed into the jail, tore off Miller's clothing, and tied his shirt around his loins. Someone said the rope was a white man's death and a log chain nearly a hundred feet in length, weighing nearly a hundred pounds, was placed about his neck. He was led through the street in that condition, and hanged to a telegraph pole. After a photograph of him was taken as he hung, his fingers and toes cut off, and his body otherwise horribly mutilated, it was burned to ashes. This was done within twelve hours after Miller was taken prisoner. Since his death, his assertions regarding his movements have been proven true. But the mob refused the necessary time for investigation. No more appropriate close for this chapter can be given than an editorial quotation from that most consistent and outspoken journal, The Interocean. Commenting on the many barbarous lynchings of these two months, June and July, in its issue of August 5, 1893, it says... So long as it is known that there is one charge against a man which calls for no investigation before taking his life, there will be mean men seeking revenge ready to make that charge. Such a condition would soon destroy all law. It would not be tolerated for a day by white men. But the Negroes have been so patient under all their trials that men who no longer feel that they can safely shoot a Negro for attempting to exercise his right as a citizen at the polls, are ready to trump up any other charge that will give them the excuse for their crime. It is a singular coincidence that as public sentiment has been hurled against political murders, there has been a corresponding increase in lynchings on the charge of attacking white women. The lynchings are conducted in much the same way that they were by the Ku Klux Klans when Negroes were mobbed for attempting to vote. The one great difference is in the cause which the mob assigns for its action. The real need is for a public sentiment in favor of enforcing the law and giving every man, white and black, a fair hearing before the lawful tribunals. If the plan suggested by the Charleston News and Courier will do this, let it be done at once. No one wants to shield a fiend guilty of these brutal attacks upon unprotected women. But the Negro has as good a right to a fair trial as the white man, and the South will not be free from these horrible crimes of mob law so long as the better class of citizens try to find excuse for recognizing Judge Lynch. The lynching of C.J. Miller at Bardwell, Kentucky, July 7, 1893, referred to in Madame Barnett's writings, has not only been declared barbarism, outrageous, and outlawry, but a mistake by the lynchers themselves, as stated in Madame Barnett's comment. While in Fulton, Kentucky, a few days after the horrible deed of lynching Mr. Miller by the people of Bardwell and volunteers, the writer saw thousands of bills posted, nullifying the action of the mob in the case of Mr. Miller and urging that some other nigger be implicated in the crime and lynched 
to make up for the death of the two Ray sisters. Fulton is situated on the Illinois Central Railroad about 28 miles south of Bardwell. Every train from the south bound for the Chicago World's Columbian Exposition bore a host of interested passengers to see the ashes of the innocent man burned at Bardwell. Applications were made to the conductors to stop long enough at Bardwell to see the site. The writer was the only one of his nationality on board the train which stopped at the scene. On the morning of July 28, 1893, in the business part of the town of Bardwell, about 50 yards from the Illinois Central Station, the remains of one of the most uncivil deeds perpetrated upon an innocent man in a Christian country and civil government could be pitifully viewed from the platform or window of the car. Coleman at Decatur, Illinois. Imposition in Northern Quarters. Decatur has been mentioned elsewhere in this book. It is the third railway center in the third productive state in the U.S. Its population is 20,000. It is about 40 miles from Lincoln, where a log cabin as a relic of the martyred President Abraham Lincoln remains. There are three churches of color represented in Decatur. The first innocent blood was drawn from the neck of a colored man in 1893 and shed upon the city of Decatur by some of its respectable citizens, men and women. My introduction to Decatur was in June 1894 during my visit to a colored camp meeting. I heard it noised around that a Mr. Jackson, waiter of St. Nichols Hotel, had been arrested and placed in jail on a charge of attempted rape. The lynch alarm had been sounded, which aroused the sympathy of the colored population to protect Jackson. Those who showed cowardice were invited to a speech delivered by the writer, urging the colored men to consolidate their forces and preclude the mob from the prisoner. Much enthusiasm was manifested while the speech was being made, and at the conclusion, preparation was immediately begun to resist the murderers. Guns, revolvers, swords, knives, and clubs of any dangerous description were collected and laid by for battle. The municipal authorities showed no protection, pro et con, the movements. By 8 p.m. on the evening appointed by the mob gang, the colored men and boys were arranged in military form, being under command of general and captain, etc. The army received cheers for management, courage, and promptness from the better classes of the white population. The jail in which this prisoner was was about four blocks from the main part of the city. The white boys who usually follow shows and excitement had occupied the nearest seats to the jail at an early hour, anxiously waiting to see the end of Jackson's life. As I advanced, accompanied by my guard, one of the young spectators asked with a tone of delight, Are they going to lynch the nigger tonight? I could but give the answer, no. Having instructed all concerned to show no uncivility to any person, but at the rise of war, put forth every exertion to save the life of the prisoner. Orders were given to the band to surround the prison. Just now I began to experience some of the actual turns of the battlefield. Three hundred black faces at one signal dotted in separate groups on all sides of the jail and courthouse. At nine o'clock a man of low stature passed along the main street, smoking sumptuously, with a rope which had been presented specially for the lynching of Jackson. The rope man was so completely absorbed in the occupation, he failed to see those who had come to see justice meted out to the prisoner, who so well deserved it. Some of his constituency within the courtrooms informed him of the danger in store. He then accepted of a hard bed in the building for the night. At this crisis, absolute calmness seemed to prevail, which continued until between 1 and 2 a.m., when the watchmen were disturbed by the yells of intoxicated men. Noises of teams, wagons, riders on horseback, and some foolers, all winding their way from country villages and bush towns into the big town to kill the old nigger. The night policeman, who finally showed some degree of courtesy to the colored band, conveyed the information to the mob that 300 black men lie in wait for you. If the mob attempts to take Jackson tonight, no small number of lives will be lost. 
With this intelligence, the bloodthirsty gang received orders from their captain on a subway bridge to retreat until the next night. A reporter from the leading newspaper of the city, who had taken in the general outlook of the affair, asked permission to address the colored boys. Receiving permission from the proper source, he then rode amid the cool-headed body of men. Lighting from his horse, said, Gentlemen, I understand that you have gathered to protect Mr. Jackson. Now I wish to inform you that you need not fear anything like a mob from any person in Decatur. But they are coming from the country, came a voice from some person in the rear of the crowd. Mr. Jackson is known here as a gentleman, continued the speaker. The circumstances in connection with this case I am fully acquainted with. Mr. Jackson and this woman were intimate, and some businessmen in town can verify the fact that Mr. Jackson gave her money two days ago. The story that Mr. Jackson was found in her room on her bed with a revolver a few evenings ago is true. He was not there to force, but because she asked him there, being afraid of a policeman just outside the door. She cried out to secure herself from the law. These words were received by the company with profound respect. The Decatur Papers verified the reporter's statements. This is not, however, the end of the struggle for life. The spirit of protection was intense and grew parallel with the lynch fever. The following evening, a greater representation of the colored population appeared on the scene. Those who failed to secure themselves with arms the previous evening came better fortified, but no further attempt to enter the jail was made by the outlaws. The third night, the municipal power intervened and chastised the tumultuousness. This was begun by the arrest of one of the colored company, Mr. Artist, who had occupied a seat in the park, which faces the front street, and who had two shotguns, and was repeatedly told to leave. This he refused to do. On this ground, he was imprisoned. A committee composed of Mr. J. Artist, Mr. Oliphant, and the writer called on the mayor. His honor cordially received the committee and assured the committee that nothing to hinder the colored citizens from standing for themselves will be done. Mr. Artist will be released tomorrow morning. From these proceedings, the reader is not to conclude that such an act would stop the southern lynchings. In a northern city of so small a population of colored people as Decatur, it is reasonable to suppose that race war would not be tolerated while such would be the case in the South. That the city officials were friendly to the action of the colored people is seen in the fact that there was no interference with them until the third night of the warfare and the releasement of Mr. Artist. It should be remembered that the colored citizens were in every respect submissive to the law, only that the condition of their surroundings had grown to the doctrine eye for eye and tooth for tooth. With an outstretched hand to fallen humanity and uplifted voice to God, accompanied by a painful heart, I must here appeal to Scripture facts. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Reverend Mr. Mudd, a distinguished divine, connected himself with the colored citizens of Decatur, striving to uphold the right in the case of Mr. Jackson, who, through the instrumentality of his race, was given a fair trial. End of section 7